be seated. Please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 12. So we continue our sermon series this morning through the book of Exodus, and our text will be Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 through 51. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 33, the Holy Spirit of God says this, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to Yahweh by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, Yahweh brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. We confess and believe that your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Those are the opening words of the Emancipation Proclamation. 
issued by President Abraham Lincoln in 1862. And even though there was still a long and painful process to complete the abolition of slavery in the United States of America, the Emancipation Proclamation was the beginning of the end of American slavery. Our scripture passage this morning tells us of the end of Israel's slavery in Egypt. Even though the entire book is called Exodus, this pericope, Exodus 12, 33 through 51, is the actual Exodus account. These are the verses, this is the section that tells us of Israel's exodus from Egypt. As we have been preaching through the book of Exodus, we have witnessed key historical redemptive events leading us to the Exodus, stories that anyone who's been in church for any amount of time would be familiar with, stories like uh, the burning bush and the 10 plagues or the 10 strikes. We're still awaiting other key events, redemptive historical events tied to the Exodus, like the crossing of the Red Sea, the golden calf, and the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. But this text, this sermon, this morning, is the actual exodus from Egypt. In this narrative, Holy Scripture emphasizes three important themes, important elements, important points about the actual exodus uh, that we're going to work through here. And what's What's going to happen is these themes in this text are going to show us, they're going to lead us to how the story of the Exodus connects to our story here in 2022 through the story of Jesus Christ. So the first important theme or the first important point that we want to note is the plunder. The plunder. There might, there may or may not be a little alliteration this morning, okay? But you got to wait for it. You got to wait for it. The first one is plunder, that the, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. Don't forget that Yahweh promised Moses that this was going to happen. When Yahweh spoke to Moses through the burning bush, he said this in Exodus chapter 3. He said, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. That's Exodus 3, 21 through 22. So as Yahweh promised, uh, when he delivered his old covenant people from slavery, he did not send them away empty-handed. No, Yahweh plundered his enemies. It's important that we note here that, that in truth, uh, the Lord didn't steal anything that didn't already belong to him. God is the creator of all things. Uh, God and all of creation is rightly his. Scripture says in other places that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, now, again, if you've been in, in church for any length of time, you're probably familiar with that passage, but also you're living in Metro Detroit in 2022, and so you're like, okay, God has a bunch of cows. You know, what does that even matter? The point is that the, that the Lord is, has infinite wealth. In, 
in the ancient Near East, uh, primarily would have been a, a livestock, you know, kind of shepherding, farming culture. So to say that, that you have a thousand hills worth of cattle uh, meant that you were, you know, basically like the Jeff Bezos of uh, the ancient Near East. You had a lot. You were wealthy. And that's the Lord. It all belongs to him. He rightfully owns it. He created it. And so when he decides to plunder his enemies and give that plunder to his people, that is firmly within his rights as sovereign creator and king of the world. Not only did Israel plunder the Egyptians' property, but they also plundered some of their people. Did you notice that in verse 38 it says that a mixed multitude also went up with them? That means that it was not merely ethnic Jews who left Egypt in the Exodus, but also that some of the Egyptians converted and left with the Israelis. After seeing Yahweh's judgment, some of these Gentiles repented and believed in the promise. We read later in verses 43 through 51 that Yahweh gives instructions about the Gentiles participating in the Passover. This was necessary not only because in the future from this point there would be Gentiles who would be converted, but they also had some of the nations in their midst already. So even this is, this is where it's important for our, for our hermeneutics and how we understand uh, Israel, ancient Israel, and even modern Israel in relation to the Bible, is that even before Israel was officially a nation, okay? Israel is not a nation until they get the law at Mount Sinai. So right now, they're just a really big family, right? These are all the sons of Israel. Jacob was renamed Israel, and these are his descendants. So they're not even technically a nation yet. It doesn't happen till Mount Sinai. So even before Israel is officially a nation, there are some in their midst that are not ethnically Jewish. The point is that from the very inception of Israel's national and covenantal identity, true Israel, those who are actually Israel, the people of God, are not only ethnic Jews. So biblically speaking, Israel does not mean and has never meant strictly ethnic Jews. True Israel under the old covenant were all those who submitted to the covenant and believed in the promise, Jews and Gentiles. This plundering of God's enemies was a shadow that was pointing us forward to the fulfillment of the one who is the true Israel, the true person of God namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he would do through his life, death, and resurrection. It's interesting this, this, as you follow this vocabulary through the Bible. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is answering a charge that's being leveled against him by the Jewish leadership. And their charge is that Jesus exercises demons using the power of Satan. So the Jewish leaders were saying, well, of course you can make the demons leave because you, you, got a, you made a deal with the devil and so all of his cronies listened to you and that's why you have the power to do it because you're basically Satan, because you're in cahoots with Satan, so that's why you can exercise demons. Jesus' response 
It's interesting, Jesus is answering their question. He's, he's, he's going to let them know that he's not, he's not on team Satan. But the vocabulary that he uses and the illustration that he gives is actually connected to what's happening here in the Exodus. Jesus says that he actually came to plunder Satan, just as the Israelis or the Jews plundered the Egyptians. Listen to Mark 3, 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, I'm not in cahoots with Satan. I came to bind Satan and to plunder all, of, all that he had. We see this same truth from another angle in Revelation chapter 20. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So Mark chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 20 both talk about Satan being bound. Both pericopes actually use the same Greek word for binding. It's the word duo. There's strong evidence that these two passages are talking about the same event. Namely, that when Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, he bound Satan so that Satan might not deceive the nations any longer. It's the reason why the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. Israel's plundering of the Egyptians foreshadows what Jesus Christ came to do. Egypt is a type of Satan. Egypt is in the line of the seed of the serpent. Jesus Christ is both Yahweh and true Israel. Jesus is both covenant maker and covenant keeper. Jesus is both truly God and truly man. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5. I wrote my dissertation about Christ-centered preaching, and I used the book of Haggai as uh, a test case of how to apply Christ-centered preaching. And what's going on in the book of Haggai is that Israel, now this is hundreds of years after the Exodus, they had gone into exile for 70 years because of their covenant unfaithfulness, and then they're brought back into the land, and as they return to the land, the Lord commands them to rebuild the temple. Remember, the temple was destroyed when Israel was uh, cast into exile. And this is what Yahweh says. Listen to Haggai 2.7 as he's prophesying about the final temple. This is what he says. He says, And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares Yahweh of hosts. And so he's using the same language as the Exodus. All the silver's coming in. All the gold's coming in. Didn't we just read that? 
from Exodus that the, that the Hebrews plundered the silver and the gold of the Egyptians. And what's going on in Haggai after the exiles is they've come back is he's foreshadowing the final temple, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the final temple. He says that uh, in the gospel of John, tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. The temple, this temple that they rebuilt in Haggai was destroyed in AD 70. It's never been rebuilt uh, because Jesus is the true and final temple. And now everyone who trusts in Jesus is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church. And what he's saying is that uh, the plundering of the nations uh, namely the nations themselves, all of the elect from all the nations, is coming into this final temple. The writer of Hebrews interprets Haggai 2.7 to refer to the unshakable kingdom of Christ. What that means is through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has plundered all of the treasures of the nations. What are the treasures of the nations? The elect people for whom Jesus died. Jesus is gathering his people from all over the globe for all time. He is plundering the nations. He has bound Satan so that Satan can't deceive the nations from believing the gospel. Church, this should give us confidence and hope to follow Jesus even in the midst of sin and suffering. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the victorious one. The doctrine we ascribe to this is called Christus Victor, that Christ is victorious. Jesus crushed the serpent's head through his death and resurrection. Jesus continues to crush Satan's head as people place their faith in Jesus even today. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And Jesus will finally and fully destroy the evil dragon when he returns to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. What does that mean for us? Church, we're on the winning team. That's not to minimize sin, and it's not to minimize suffering, but it's a rebuke to those of us who are tempted in whatever circumstance to grieve without hope. When you have hope and you grieve as one who doesn't have hope, you're calling God a liar. Again, we don't minimize grief, but to grieve, but to grieve without hope is to not believe the gospel. Jesus wins. Everyone who believes in Jesus, who's, who's, who's died, they're with Jesus. And they're going to come back with Jesus. And we're going to live in a perfect world without sin forever. Like, however bad it is, and I know for you it might be bad right now. For our family, it's bad right now. Listen, however bad it is, like, we're on the winning team, okay? You might be down 28 to 3 right now, but you're going to win the game. You got, you got Jesus. Christ is victor. Christ is victorious. Why? Because he has plundered his enemy. Just as the Hebrews plundered the Egyptians, Jesus has bound Satan with his death and resurrection. He has plundered his house. And now people from every nation and every generation are believing the gospel. There is not a single person for whom Jesus died that will go to hell. There is not one single person 
that Jesus died for, who's going to hell? Jesus has plundered the enemy. So plunder, that's the first, it's the first theme. The second theme that we see is providence. I know, I told you to stay tuned. Israel's plundering of Egypt is, is uh, like I said, it's not the only theme that leads us to the gospel. Divine providence here in Exodus chapter 12 is leading us to the gospel as well, to the true and final Exodus. Look again at verses 40 through 41. It says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Israel's exit from Egypt was 430 years to the day that Israel entered Egypt. Isn't that fascinating? This timing is not a coincidence. God was in control of this situation from its very start to its very finish. Long before Israel went to Egypt, Yahweh told Abraham exactly what was going to happen. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. Listen, as Yahweh makes his covenant with Abraham, this is what he says. This is, this is Abraham. This isn't Isaac. This isn't Jacob. This isn't Joseph. Yahweh says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. The Lord called a shot on that one, right? That's exactly what happened. God meticulously and sovereignly managed Israel's sojourn in Egypt. The King James and the New King James of Exodus 12, 41 both began this way. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years. I love that phrase, it came to pass. Modern translations don't use it because people don't speak that way anymore. But I love it because it's, it's like a way of saying, what a coincidence. You know, like a little wink. Isn't that a coincidence? It's a way of saying, this is no coincidence at all. It came to pass. The sovereign covenant God is directing all of history to a very specific moment. And that very specific moment is what we read about in Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, all of history, all of human history is providentially teleological. All of history has a goal. That's what by teleological mean, it has a goal. There's a telos. The goal of all of history is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the meaning of human history. The gospel of Jesus tells us that God is our holy creator and that Adam sinned and that in Adam we sinned against God. And because of that, we are born with a sin nature. And because we're born with a sin nature, we sin in thought, word, and deed. We sin by what we have done and we sin by what we have left undone. Pastor Brett just led us moments ago in our weekly confession and pardon 
where we rehearse these truths every single week, that we are sinners, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We fell in Adam and we practice sin because we fell in Adam. But thanks be to God, as the Nicene Creed says, that for us and for our salvation, the Father sent his Son to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. His Son's name is Jesus of Nazareth. He indeed lived a truly human life, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He died on the cross bearing God's wrath against our sin. He was buried, and on the third day he resurrected from the dead. Now, everyone who will repent and believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. The Holy Spirit, when he changes your heart, you turn from your sin toward Jesus. You place your faith in Jesus. What does that mean? It means you have the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. It means that you assent that those things are true and that you transfer your trust to Jesus alone. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to lead the true and final exodus. And he knew exactly what to do. You know why? Because it wasn't his first time. It's interesting, when we were in Bible class, uh, we were talking about the book of Titus in the New Testament class, and we were t- I was talking about how there's a, there's a verse in Titus that I, I don't like the translation. I don't think it's the best translation uh, in the ESV. And what's ironic is, that, you know, Pastor Andrew came and led us in our call to worship, and I don't know what version he was reading from, but I like the ESV's translation better. Listen to Jude 5 from the ESV. It says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Jude doesn't say God saved a people. He doesn't, he doesn't say the Father. He, he says Jesus. That G, not even the Son. He says Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude reveals to us that Jesus himself led Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. We know that's true for a couple of reasons. Number one, that's true because Jesus is Yahweh. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. As Jesus says that, he's calling back to the burning bush account from Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, when Moses says to the Lord, who should I say sent me? And he says, I am who I am. When Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who said that to Moses. And Jude tells us that Jesus is the one who led his people out of slavery in Egypt. So not only did Jesus actually do it, but Jesus also led the Exodus in type or in shadow. Moses, we've talked about this some through our study of Exodus, Moses is a type of Christ leading his God's people out of slavery. You see, Jesus is the true and better Moses who leads his people out of the slave market of sin and death and into the promised land of the new creation. The events of the Exodus were providential pictures given by God in time and space 
to prepare his people for the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It came to pass. God is meticulously and sovereignly directing every second of history to the goal of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So once again, the most important application that I can give here for all of us is that we should repent and believe the gospel. If you've not done that, there is nothing more important in your life than being right with God exclusively through his son, Jesus Christ. Do not stay in slavery. Embrace the good news that God adopts all who place their faith in his son, Jesus. You don't have to remain enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You can take Christ by faith. For those who do believe, this is a healthy reminder for us that we must trust in the providence of God. Just as God meticulously and sovereignly oversaw Israel's time in Egypt, so he does for his people. There's there's not a sparrow who goes unfed, Jesus tells us. There's not a, a flower that falls to the ground without the Lord's knowledge. Nothing ever happens by accident. Nothing is ever a coincidence. Everything that's ever happened to you, every experience you've ever had, every conversation you've ever had, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between, none of it was by mistake, none of it was out of God's control, none of it was a coincidence. So that means wherever you are right now, God has you there for a reason. Trust and obey him with your marriage, with your family, with your children, with your singleness, with your education, your work, your empty nest, your grandchildren, your retirement, your sickness, your health, your money, your everything. We should be content with where God has us. It's funny, people talk about contentment like it's a bad thing, you know, like it's a cuss word. Like you should always be trying to make more money or always be trying to be in a bigger house or a nicer car. Don't be content, stay hungry. Man, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. But those things become idols fast. Contentment is never sin. Let me say that again. Contentment is never sin. Now, laziness can be a sin. Not providing for your family is definitely a sin. But contentment is never sin. In fact, Lack of contentment is sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Listen to this, what also Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-12. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these 
we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Man, what are you living for? You know, we always, we always give the obligatory uh, preface that, you know, it's not inherently sinful to be rich. Obviously, there are the righteous rich and the righteous poor. There are the unrighteous rich and the unrighteous poor. On and on. You know that. Don't use that as an excuse to ignore what the Bible says about an ungodly and unhealthy love of money. The love of money is a, is a root of all kinds of evil. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. Paul says here that those who love money, who build their life on pursuing wealth, the bigger house, the better car, the higher portfolio, whatever it is, if that's what you're living for, then you are going to plunge yourself into destruction. Are you content? That doesn't mean that you don't work hard. That doesn't mean that you don't strive and you don't make goals and you don't pursue them. But are you content? Because if you are not, then you're saying to God, you're not good enough. Wherever you've got me right now is not good enough and I know better. And my life will mean more if I have this or that. Are you content? There were people in Israel who lived during the time when uh, Joseph was governor over Egypt. They came in with Jacob and his sons. There are other Israelites God's people who lived during the time of the Exodus, the time that we're reading about now, who actually experienced that. They weren't there for Joseph's reign, but they experienced the Exodus. And then there were some of God's people who lived their entire life from start to finish enslaved in Egypt. They were born as slaves, they lived a life as a slave, and they died as a slave. They weren't there for Joseph's governorship and they weren't there for the Exodus. And yet by faith, they too were the people of God. They lived where God had them. Wherever you are in your life right now, if you belong to Jesus, God has you there for a reason. Now, that's an important caveat, right? I don't want to comfort you in your sin of God's, God's providence. Like, if you're in rebellion to Jesus, that's not where God wants you. 
right? He wants you to repent and believe and follow Jesus. If your life is falling apart because you're chasing sin, then don't take comfort in God's providence that he's happy with you where you are, right? Your life's falling apart because he wants you to come to Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus, if you're repenting of your sin, if, 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 if you're trusting and obeying, trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If that's what you're doing, you're not doing it perfectly, but your life is structured around that, then trust in the providence of God. You are not out of his care. You are not out of his control. Trust and obey him in his providence. The third and final theme we see here is, once again, that of the Passover. So we had the plunder, providence, and the Passover. There's more instruction given here on the Passover. In fact, this section, the actual Exodus section, which spans verses 33 through 42, and then I I suppose again in verse uh, 51, but that, that main section there is sandwiched by instructions about the Passover. Did you notice that? Like the beginning of Exodus chapter 12 is about the Passover. And then verses 33 through 42, we have the Exodus pericope. And then we go back to more instruction about the Passover. So there's, it's like a Passover sandwich here. I, I'm not, this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be some deep insight that you don't understand. Obviously, the Exodus and the Passover are undeniably united to each other, right? Duh, of course. The Passover is the meal marking the Exodus, remembering and reliving of the Exodus. And in these verses here, at the end of chapter 12, Yahweh is giving direction concerning who may or may not participate in the Passover meal. Now, our sermon last week uh, gave more careful attention to the meaning of the Passover event and the ceremony, and so we're not going to rehearse that. If you'd like to hear or see that sermon or any of our sermons uh, from, from the past, uh, you can go to the church website, Facebook, YouTube, etc. But that being said, I do want to draw our attention to a unique point that is made about the Passover here in Exodus 12, 43 through 51. And that is this, namely, that the Passover meal is exclusively for those who are in the covenant. The Passover meal was for those who are in the covenant. No one was to practice the feast of Passover unless they took the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which was circumcision. Remember, God had not given the Mosaic covenant yet, or the covenant with Israel. They're living and functioning under the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of the covenant for, uh, given to Abraham was circumcision. So you were not allowed to take the Passover meal unless you were circumcised. Or if you're a female, you're in a, a home where the, the father, the, the patriarch of the family was circumcised and all the males. The Passover was not to be taken lightly is the point here. It was for those who are in covenant with Yahweh to remember and relive your salvation. If you are not in covenant with God, if you've not experienced salvation, you can't remember and relive it. You need to experience it before you can remember and relive it. Those who do not have faith in the promises of Yahweh are disqualified from observing Passover. To say that positively, the Passover was for the people of God exclusively. It was for those who had faith in Yahweh and took the sign of the covenant. 
Now, there's a lot of reasons for this hermeneutic, but Christians have always seen, all, all brands of Christians, right? All the denominations, all the different groupings, to some extent or another, have seen a degree of continuity between the Old and New Covenant. Some see far less continuity. Uh, you know, as, a, as, a, as we stand in the Reformed tradition, we would see more continuity between the Old and the New Covenant. But every Christian has seen some degree of con- continuity. I don't know if there was anybody who would say there's nothing at all connecting uh, the two. I mean, G- you know, Jesus himself says he came to fulfill the law, so you, at the very least you got to say they're connected in that way. We would see much more connection than that, though. But <clears throat> just as God's old covenant people took the sign of circumcision by faith as a prerequisite for the Passover meal, Christians of all denominations have believed taught and practiced that God's new covenant people, the church, take the sign of baptism as prerequisite for the Lord's Supper, which is, of course, the fulfillment of the Passover meal. Now, different traditions and different denominations practice baptism differently, right? We're not talking about uh, Roman Catholic church. We're not talking about... um, Church of Christ. I'm not talking about anyone who would practice baptismal regeneration, uh, which is an which is an affront to the gospel. Okay, so take those out. But for those for those who don't have that view, okay, there are some who would stand in line of uh, believers' baptism, like we practice here at Christ Community Church. There would be others who would stand in the line of infant baptism, who would not see it as uh, washing away sins, but would see it just as the sign of the covenant. We both share the same meaning of the sacraments, though we have different modes, right? But we're all agreeing on this one thing, that baptism uh, as the new covenant, uh, as the first new covenant sign is prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. Scripture teaches that we are justified before God on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone, and that the signs of that faith are the sacraments, baptism and the Holy Eucharist. Baptism is the initiatory rite into the new covenant. Baptism is the first act of obedience after one places his or her faith in Jesus Christ. It is the doorway into membership into the local church. That's why last week after we baptized Haddon and Dylan and Christian, they came forward and covenanted as uh, new members of Christ Community Church. Why? Because the New Testament teaches us Uh, just as the Old Covenant did about circumcision, that this sign of the covenant is our doorway, our entrance into the community. We don't practice uh, sporadic baptism. Someone should not be baptized apart from a local church. They must be baptized into the local church. And and there, there are people who practice infant uh, baptism, who would believe that in a non-saving way, and those who would practice believer's baptism. But the meaning is the same. Baptism is a picture of identification with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, namely his death and resurrection. But baptism is into the local church. Just as converts of the old covenant uh, became a part of the community when they took the sign of circumcision, so new Christians become a part of the church through baptism. So baptism is the initiatory rite. It's the first rite of uh, the local 
church and Holy Communion is the ongoing rite of the new covenant. Baptism is administered once. The Lord's Supper is administered every single week. And it is, the Lord's Supper, of course, is fulfillment of the Passover meal. It is only for those who have taken Christ by faith and received the initiatory sign of the new covenant, which is holy baptism. So even now, as we prepare to take the Eucharist again this week, you should be self-reflecting. Have you taken Christ by faith? Do you believe the gospel? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Because if not, don't get up and come get the bread and the wine. You don't need these things. You need Jesus. Without Jesus, you're going to die and go to hell forever. And it's going to be just and right because you're a sinner, but God offers grace through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't take communion if you're not trusting in Jesus. Take Jesus. Repent and believe. Have, if you've done that, have you been baptized? If the answer is no to either of those questions, I would beg of you, come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Kevin, talk to any of the elders that you saw leading the liturgy this morning about the gospel or about baptism. Because let me tell you this, again, there's nothing more important in your entire life than whether or not you are right with God exclusively through his son, Jesus. All roads do not lead to heaven. Every road but one leads to eternal conscious punishment in hell. Every road but one. But you know what the good news is? That road's not a mystery. It's the good news of Jesus. Repent and believe. If you are a baptized Christian, then we welcome you this morning to the Lord's table so that you can remember and proclaim that Christ has died Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. Even though President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was effective on January 1st, 1863, it was still indeed a long and painful process to actually abolish slavery in the United States. And ch church, listen, I know you know my pattern, so you know we're wrapping this up and you're starting to shuffle a little bit, but this is good, okay? I want you to hear this. The same is true for God's people. They were physically freed from Egyptian slavery, but their hearts were still enslaved to sin. This is important because we want, we want to be the people who love our neighbors as ourselves, and we want to be the people who rightly say things like uh, racial injustice and all forms of injustice are uh, standing antithetical to Jesus and his kingdom. Amen to all that but don't confuse the two. This physical slavery was not the end goal. To be enslaved for your whole life, but to have Jesus is infinitely better than to be free and to be enslaved to your sin. They were still enslaved to their sin. They needed a greater exodus. This was not enough. But when the time was right, the father sent his son, the true and final Passover lamb. And, and what Jesus did is he plundered Satan's house and he freed us from our slavery to sin. John 8, 36 says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. 
Everyone who trusts in Jesus alone shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, even this morning, through your word and through your spirit, that you would free enslaved hearts. Lord, I don't have the omniscience to know who among the congregation this morning is not trusting in Jesus. But your Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit, you know the heart of every individual here in the room. And so we would ask now that you would take the word and that you would change hearts. We ask that you would free slaves this morning. Because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Father, we thank you that you freed your old covenant people from slavery. We thank you, Lord, for our freedom that we experience here in the United States of America, Father. But please, please help us not to minimize the fact that the most important freedom that we need, that every human who ever has lived needs, is to be freed from your rightful wrath against our sin. Jesus took that on the cross. And Lord, we know that not one will perish that you have elected. And so, Father, we would ask even now that you would save by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.